Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Deep in History. This is Marcus Grodi, joined by Monsignor Steenson. Hello, Monsignor. How do you do? Good to see you, Marcus. It's good to join again. We were, uh, you at home maybe don't know this, but we were delayed last week from taping another episode because Monsignor was doing his duty. He was attending by internet the USCCB meeting. Um, in fact, I'm going to ask you a question about that. You know, sure, yeah. I, I've attended those meetings over the years as an observer, and you, as the former ordinary for the, the Anglican ordinariate, have an official lifetime membership to, to be involved with it. I would say that sometimes I would attend those bishops' meetings, and and I wasn't always that hopeful uh, and and uplifted after I saw the gang gathered. How did you feel after last week's USCCB meeting? I was surprised. I thought it was it went better than I thought it would. Perhaps um, doing it virtually helps a lot because <laughs> um, it's easier to follow the speakers that way. What what Marcus? What I came away with was um, they were talking a lot about the McCarrick report, of course, yeah. and and then also the whole the whole political situation that we're facing, and right. I. I heard um, amazingly strong witness from so many of the bishops. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, sorrow and and um, regret about the failures of leadership in the past. And um, you know, there were there were some low points, of course, as there are at any meeting. But on the whole, I would say the faithful should be encouraged by the leadership that the bishops are giving um good they 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 get it Mo most of them seem to really get it that this is they're at a critical point in the life of the church in this country and it's step up to the plate time well that's yeah. that is good to hear um uh, just I should ask you off off air I suppose but I'm curious did they talk anything more about the updated liturgy of the hours um, no, I didn't hear it. I, at least I was sleeping through that part. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's understandable yeah. with everything else happening that maybe that wasn't yeah. un, up in front, but I, a lot of us are anxious to, to see what the new translation will be like. Yeah, I don't recall there being anything on liturgy on the agenda. Um, All right. Almost all, most of it was dominated by um, the receipt, receipt of the Merrick McCarrick report. Well, and that would, yeah. you know, that that's what the laity would hope that they focused on and maybe not other things uh, because that is so yeah. hurtful for so many people. And Marcus, I, I think it's fair to say um, that I heard more this time than I've ever heard before um, bishops reflecting on the root causes of all this, um, that, you know, the H word. Um, yeah. I was, I was encouraged by that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. as my, as uh, Pope Emeritus 
Benedict XVI said it was a, a loss of faith, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, we, we need that faith. Uh, it's the least we can expect of our bishops, so it's good to hear that it was a good gathering. Well, as we jump back into this book, which was written, what, uh, 1,800 years ago? Yeah. Um, or so. Uh, and we wonder, how does it apply to today? I think it applies very much so. The, the organization of bishops in the year 175 wasn't quite what it has developed over these 1,800 years. But what we have in behind this book is a bishop trying to help his parishioners and other bishops deal with crises in and around the church. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what Irenaeus was doing. Supposed teachers teaching contrary things, confusing the laity and their lives you know, some of those teachers were having different ideas about morality. And that's what's happening today. Yeah. And at 175, Monsignor, I don't know if there had been any synods yet other than the Jerusalem Synod. You know what I mean? I mean, in terms of bishops sure, gathering yeah. yet. Yeah. Uh, they were pretty much on persecution lockdown at that point. So. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, because they were taking a stand for their faith, and so as a result, they were suffering persecution. You know. It, yeah. So, um, but we ended last week on page three thirty-eight, at the top of three thirty-eight, and which is book twelve. We ended with section one. And, you know, Monsignor, every time I do this, um, and I feel it's so inadequate to do this because I know there are great scholars like yourself out there that have studied this and read it. And, and I mean, seriously, there's so many to really understand what's going on in Irenaeus's work. It helps to have a a fuller understanding of patristics, the history, the politics of the time, and all that. And I know I'm just scratching the surface. In fact, before we jump in, Monsignor, I wanted you to open us with prayer this week. With all the stuff all right. going on in our lives, I was going to ask you we'd open us with prayer. I'd be happy to. Um, I, I chose a prayer. Um, uh, it's a meditation, a prayer before meditating or studying. And this is from Origin of Alexandria, so just a few years ahead of uh, behind Irenaeus. I just I love this prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord, inspire us to read your scriptures and to meditate upon them day and night. We beg you to give us real understanding of what we need, that we in turn may put its precepts into practice. That we know that understanding and good intentions are worthless unless rooted in your graceful love. So we ask that the words of scripture may also not just be signs on a page, but channels of grace into our hearts. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, I can't help but think as you prayed that, that 
it's not that we're saying that this book is scripture, but is truly in line with Irenaeus's view of scripture. It is, yes. I mean, that's what Irenaeus would want us to do. Yeah. So it is, a, it is his deep reading of scripture. Well, the section we're we're jumping kind of right into the middle, or maybe into the opening salvos of a long discussion, at least as I read it, Monsignor, of Irenaeus dealing with this this idea of the law and of traditions that are added on to or taken away from that law, undergirding the law. And actually, he's referring to beneath the law, that which undergirds the law itself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it can focus a lot on love. We can see focus on what's going on in the heart, focus on what one believes, uh, what our Lord taught in relationship to the law. We can see what the Gnostics, how they took the law and misinterpreted it. They pose the idea of there's God, but there's a, a, a more perfect God before the God and other, you know, all this stuff is going on in here. And as I, as I reflected on it, Monsignor, I wanted to, before we jumped into it, I wanted to, it seems to me, and you, I want you to correct me on this, as I understand what seems to be going on in Irenaeus's, I guess it would be his hermeneutic, is the foundational idea. And I think the clue to it is in two places I want to draw our attention to those of you that have the, the book in front of you. I want to jump ahead to page 340 in which... Irenaeus at the bottom, the beginning of chapter 13, section 1, he says, And that the Lord did not abolish, but extend and fulfill the natural precepts of the law by which man is justified. And then I'm going to pause there for a second. Well, I'm going to go on, excuse me. He says, which even before the giving of the law, were kept by such as were justified by faith and pleased God. Now, I think that statement is really powerful. That he is saying that there were natural precepts of the law which were before the giving of the law by Moses, which were kept by such as as were justified by faith. And so he means justified by faith before the giving of the law, before circumcision, all of that, which would mean Abraham. That's right. Before Abraham received the law, before he was circumcised, he was justified by faith. That's right. And uh, he makes that point in in these pages, how... um, uh, how Abraham didn't have the benefit of all these things, um, but yet he had a pure faith. Yep. And so, and what was you that? You going to mention? Well, what was that faith oh, based no, on? I mean, uh, yeah, it's going. So, what was that faith that Abraham and others had? Methus, um, Melchizedek, before Abraham, Melchizedek. What? He didn't have the law of Moses. He didn't have any of that. 
But what was it that was the foundation to Melchizedek's faith? Or there's one place where in Scripture where Abraham is traveling with his wife and he encounters a king named Abimelech. And so he tells Sarah, we're going we're gonna to do a little fiction here. It's not exactly a lie, but, you know, it's a little twisted. We're going to tell him that you're my sister. Because uh, if, if he knew you were my wife, he might kill me. So if you're my sister, you know. So Abimelech takes Sarah, right? Um, and in there you read that at some point Abimelech cries out to God and says, wait a second, I was tricked here that I didn't know this. So we have Abimelech talking to God saying, and God saying, you're innocent. It wasn't your sin. You know, he is. But, but the point in that passage, Abimelech isn't a part of the family of God. Abimelech, he doesn't have any of the Where did Abimelech get the idea that having uh, intercourse with this man's wife was bad? Where'd that come from? Here's it sounds like the natural law. That's exactly right. And, <laughs> and that, to me, is what Irenaeus is dealing with here. He calls it the natural precepts of the law. If you jump to page 343, which is section 4 of chapter 13, he says, All the natural precepts, then, being common to us and them— He's talking about all those other teachers. In them they had their beginning and source, but in us they received their increase and completion. And for to assent unto God and to follow his word and to love him above all things and one's neighbor as oneself, and man is man's neighbor, and to abstain from every evil work and all such precepts as are common to both demonstrate one and the same God. So there is a God, a creator before all of these people, all of these customs, all these traditions who instilled within mankind a natural precept of the law in our conscience. And what was that? The core of that underlying everything is as Irenaeus says, the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbors as yourself. And that's why when the, when the Pharisee went to Jesus and says, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, it's this. And he says, all the law and the prophets are summarized by this first of all laws, which is what Irenaeus is trying to say is undergirds everything that he's teaching about. Yeah, no, that's a great point, Marcus. And... Um, you know, his, you know, keeping in mind who his um, opponents are here, I mean, their basic argument is, look, all of that stuff in the Old Testament, you know, put it in the garbage. It's useless. I mean, it literally is because the God of the Old Testament is trash. I mean, they said that. Yeah. And so... He has the obligation now, or he's got, it is necessary for him to show that salvation history is unified. And um, and so he's got a, I, we were teasing about this. Um, yeah. This is kind of his development of doctrine yeah. theory in a way, because we have to explain how it is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all those guys lived without the law. 
And then we have this long period of time where there's the law, and then the time of Jesus Christ and the church, which transcends or adds to or whatever word we want to use here. Um, he's got he's to put it all together, and this is his theory of how to do that. He says in section 2 of 13 on the bottom of 341, and that because the law as being appointed for slaves trained up the soul by outward and bodily things, drawing her as by a chain to the obedience of its precepts, that man might learn to serve God. But the word delivering the soul taught also how through it the body might be voluntarily cleansed. Whereupon followed the course that the chains of slavery should be taken away to which man had now become accustomed and that without chains he should follow God that on the other hand the enactments of liberty should be greatly drawn out and our submission to our king enhanced that no person turning backwards might shew himself unworthy towards a deliverer. It talks in other places that just as you've just said, you have this development. Yeah, because, you know, those Gnostic guys were running around saying um, they all got it wrong. Um, of course, Jesus got it right. And Jesus passed it on to us. We are a little secret group that we got this gnosis from. <laughs> um, and and so they, you know, they're claiming that they're, well, they went around claiming that they were above things like the law. Um, and I thought this is remarkable here what you what, what you uh, read about the, well, what the function of the law is. He also said, and I, I had ended on page 343, section 4, when I talk about the national precepts, I had stopped my reading when he says, and all, and, and down about one, two, three, four, about eight lines, on uh, set, section 4, 343, and all such precepts as are common to both demonstrate one and the same God. And this is our Lord, the Word of God, who first indeed drew men as slaves to God, but afterwards liberated those who are subject unto him. So in other words, he's also said that Christ is the author all the way through, but through yes. the law... He's drawing us to God as slaves, subject as our physical being surrendering, but now he's liberated us by grace in the freedom we have, which he talks about in other places. And, and um, you know, he, the, the Lord's um, summary of the commandments, this, that perfect law, love of God, love of neighbor. Um, yeah. It's very important for St. Irenaeus to show that this is this is foundational to everything in the old covenant too um so this is an an overview of what we're going to talk about because we're there's yeah. more here we could point to but let's get to it when we get yeah. to it but i do think this is this is what he's pointing out and it's interesting that it comes out because he's fighting against these guys in, in their particular goofy theologies but I think it does remind us today, It's I think in Vatican II, it really came out in the documents of the Second Vatican Council. It talks about the natural law, and it talks about that's how we, why we can accept that, that there is a knowledge of God outside of Christianity, because it's built on these natural precepts of the law 
that were there from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't mean they're just saved by what they have. They're, if they're saved, they're saved by God's mercy and grace through Christ, whether they realize it or not. And the reason for missionary movements is that we can go out there and build on this foundation that's already there. We know it's there. We see it in their religions, so their religions are kind of goofy, but it's built on these natural precepts. And so there's, a, there's an echo always there of creation, which, you know, uh, seems to be what Irenaeus is building on. I mean, I was going to point out that in the, in the Clement, in the, er, one of the earliest writings of the church, during the same time of the New Testament, there was a book called the Didache, which begins, and I'm, we were sure Irenaeus would have read this. I mean, I would have been surprised. Yeah. I mean, they thought it was a part of the canon of Scripture off and on during yeah. this time, but he, though he doesn't seem to quote from it. Um, but the writer of the Didache says, there are two ways, one of life and one of death. And there is a great difference between the two ways. This is the way of life. First, you shall love God with who made you. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. And so it's as if the Didache is taking that long development through Christ, the apostolic tradition handed on, and it's almost like he's reminding us that through all of this, the core of it is still the same. You're still the same. You're either with God or you ain't. Yeah. That's it. Jesus said there's two ways. There's a wide way and a narrow way. And the narrow gate is mm-hmm. only a few going to get through that, he says. And, and that's, you know, that's to me is the undergirding of, of all that's being said here. All right, Monsignor, I've <clears throat> thank you for that joining me in that little reflection. If we go back to, if you would, everybody, too, we're going to go back to 338. And, oh, Monsignor, how can I, I, I got something that's bugging me about this section. Okay. And before I jump into it, it's been bugging me ever since the last time because I just had this feeling like if we had any non-Catholic listeners, they'd be screaming at us. And so I want to play a little bit of a devil's advocate to you, my ecclesial friend. I'm playing devil's advocate because if you go back to page 337, here we have Irenaeus pointing out that there is the law of Moses— which, as we've discussed, the law of Moses is built on the foundational natural precepts of God's law. Mm-hmm. But he's complaining. And he's pointing out that Jesus was complaining. Because he's, Jesus was pointing out that the Pharisees, that, as it says right there in the middle of that paragraph in the bottom of 337, yet not only did they by perversion make void the law of God, mingling water with wine, but they even set up in opposition their own law, which even to this day is called Pharisaical, wherein they take away some things, some they add, others they expound at their own will, and of these their teachers make special use. 
and being minded to maintain these traditions, they have no mind to submit themselves to God's law, training them up for the coming of Christ. But they called the Lord himself to account for healing on the Sabbath, which, however, as we said before, was not forbidden by the law. Now, here's my point, Monsignor. I could say I could see Luther saying, "That's what the church did." Be, behaving pharisaically. Yes, adding yeah. to the apostolic tradition. So you have this apostolic tradition, and I could see Luther and the other reformers yelling back, "That's that's what I that's what I've been trying to tell you." is that popes and bishops and councils have added from and taken away from and replaced the original apostolic tradition with new traditions. Now, how would you respond to that accusation, Monsignor? Well, uh, thank you, <laughs> Marcus. <laughs> well, I think, I think all of us who are converts have had to wrestle with that question. And um, I think, you know, for many of us, the encouragement has been to pick up a text like St. Irenaeus and see how the essentials of the Catholic faith are very much in evidence in the, in the early centuries of the church. Um, well, as you, know, you said many times, Monsignor, this is really, for those of you that haven't studied Newman or Newman's development of doctrine, this is exactly... Yeah. What Newman was trying to answer. This is exactly yeah. what Newman was trying to answer. Um, because you have the apostolic tradition that is passed on, as, as Irenaeus has described so many times, Christ to the apostles, and then the apostles, and then the, the, the reason for returning to the church was because it was here that you found you could be certain that you had the apostolic tradition because once you get outside the church, you're going to find teachers that are adding to and subtracting from. So you hold to the church, which he's going to say later in book five, really strongly, you, you know, come back to the church. But so Newman was dealing, and you correct me if I'm wrong, Newman was dealing with this problem is that when you look to the earliest days of the church and you ask yourself, what do you find orthodoxy or do you find Anglicanism or do you find the Catholic church? In the early days of the church, you find all three. How do you determine whether it's Eastern Orthodox or Anglicanism or the Catholic Church in the early days of the church? They didn't have, you know, Keeble didn't have a problem when he translated Irenaeus. Right. Yeah. That wasn't a problem. But the problem is when you get to the fourth and the fifth and the seventh and the ninth and the eleventh century, how do you describe? The way theology developed, how liturgy developed, how how ecclesial life developed, and one way was the way that well, it was a a solid deposit that Jesus gave his apostles that was kept quiet and only poked its head out once in a while when it needed to. That was that one theory. Of course, the Jesuit theory was that we got smarter over the years, you know, but Newman didn't buy either of those, so he had his development theory to explain yeah. this very problem. Um, that's right. I think, uh, I wish, I wish we could talk to him about this. Well, we can, I suppose. <laughs> but, um, 
it'd be wonderful to hear him out on this, but I, you know what, I'm very sympathetic with the question that you raised, Marcus, because it's so easy for us to fall into an external mechanical form of the faith and just think if I do this, this, and this, and I'm okay. And it's almost, it has an echo of the Pharisaical because what are they, what were those Pharisees missing? Love. They were, they were full of pride, but they lack that, that deep love for God. Um, And that's what St. Irenaeus is um, pointing out in that section that you just read. Yeah. Pope, Pope Adrian II, after the Reformation, I don't have it in front of me, but his most one of his most famous statements was, it was our fault. We sinned, the sins of yeah. we sinned, and the divisions, you know, and so you have something like Luther saying, excuse me, but how do you fit indulgences into this? And Adrian says, well... It got out of hand. It got out of hand. In other words, that the core of indulgences is a good thing, a good, solid way to understand our connection in our prayers with those that have gone before us, but it got way out of hand. And it was the sins of the hierarchy that took it out of hand. So Newman, in his wonderful development, is trying to sh- theory is trying to show how an how do you understand an authentic development? For example, the Trinity was Trinity added on to the apostolic succession? Was it taking away from, as Irenaeus is saying, or was it was it an authentic expression of it? as we came to think about it over time. And you're better at describing that. Well, I think, you know, I, um, I want to quote, I want to quote St. Augustine here on this a bit. Um, well, many of the fathers had said similar things, but his point, he said, um, lest we, lest we turn the sacraments into something automatic and mechanical it's good to be remember to remember that hell is going to be full of baptized people yeah and the church teaches that you know the sacrament of christ body and blood it's it's true it's real but um no grace accrues to us if we're not properly disposed to receive it so and i hear saint irenaeus making this point throughout these pages, um, folks, you've got to get your hearts in the right place. Yeah. Uh, he even, he even, you know, he even almost goes to the point, it sounds a little like Billy Graham at one point, I thought, you know, calling uh, the importance of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the devil in the years following Irenaeus, the way the devil does just what Jesus and the apostles warned us he would do, to try and undercut and twist and confuse and divide. And he did that in every imaginable way. 
And we see during the time of Irenaeus that the temptation of the devil to bring in so much persecution that hopefully people would fold. Mm-hmm. And some did. Some lapsed. During the t- 50 years later, we have the problem of lapsing and Cyprian and all that group trying to deal with the lapse. But in my view, one of the things that, that the devil really used in the years that starting here and afterwards is this battling over words, the meaning of words, yeah. and dividing people over the meaning of words, forgetting charity, just yeah. as you said, forgetting yeah. that charity is more important than words. And every Sunday when we recite the Nicene Creed, we in a way celebrate the victories over words. And we, 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 the church was victorious over the confusions, but we were forced into a corner to fight over words when it would have been better if we could have just said, no, we're not going yeah. there. And sadly, we yeah. did. Marcus, I, I had made a note um, on page 339 on this, on this point in section 4. Um, where he's um, right, right by the subheading there. He was not then blaming that law which was given by Moses, which as long as Jerusalem yet stood, he recommended to be practiced. But he was blaming those men because while they uttered the words of the law, they were destitute of love and so were unrighteous toward God and their neighbors. Yeah, yeah. And I made a note here. I I can't remember what text I saw this in, but we find this same idea in Lumen Gentium 14. You can have you can have the perfect church. Oh, I've got it written here. There. I've got it written here. Yeah. It, well, yeah. in Lumen Gentium 14, yeah. he says, even though yeah. incorporated into the church. One who does not, however, persevere in charity is not saved. He remains indeed in in the um, bosom of the church, but in body, not in heart. Isn't that remarkable? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's why I think Irenaeus, at the time he was writing this, was so important. He's carrying on what Paul told Timothy in both of Timothy's letters. Don't get caught up in battles over words. Paul said, Timothy, don't do that. Get caught up on all, don't do that. Jesus said the same thing. Jesus said the same thing. Well, here's Irenaeus. Don't go there, guys. Yeah. But the devil took us there. And people were, were killed over battles of words. It's probably what eventually led to the separation of the Eastern and the Western churches, the battle mm-hmm. over words. You know, whether whether the Holy Spirit came from the Father and the Son or from the Father through the Son. I think that's the way. Yeah. We, we're battling over words. And most of those things are things we don't know. We won't know till we're in heaven. No. No, that's right. But this is really, this is what, I mean, I hope those of you listening, we're jumping all over, but this is what's behind this whole section here. I think it is so important. And to this day, I mean, in some ways, Newman's development of doctrine is trying to explain 
how we moved in words and understanding the word Trinity or, you know, transubstantiation. Maybe it would have been better if we had never, if the church had never coined the word transubstantiation and just said, look, Jesus says it's my body. That's what it is. Leave it there, which they did in the early days of the church. At this time, they left it there. But the devil pushed us. And so the church had to, to all the different, said, this is, this is the way. This seems to be the best way. It's still beyond our human experience to exactly express how transcendence happens. But that seems to be the, the, the clearest way in the midst of all these voices. And, uh, and Irenaeus was fighting that same battle at the time with these other folk. All right, Monsignor. Are you ready to begin where we're supposed to begin today? Boy, you've been taking us off on tangents. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's been me. No, I, I, I mean, that's me. It's me. It's me. Christ gave us this model to follow that we <laughs> take on other people's sins. <laughs> um, section two. He, he's emphasizing this uh, emphasis of love. And Monsignor, I really think you pointed it out. I'm wondering if we just should just leave all of this. I wonder if we should just leave a lot of this section to our audience to read um, uh, yeah. themselves because we've kind of overdone it. Um, I look down, I'm sorry. Go I, the only thing I would say on that page though, just for everybody, just to keep in mind, um, the context of this is, is um, why why is Saint Irenaeus talking about um, this 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 um, first and chief commandment? Um, and what, of course, is really um, concerns him is the argument of the Gnostics that um, Jesus was serving. Jesus was from a different God than the God who who gave the law and. And his argument is a brilliant one. If Jesus was from a different God than the God of the Old Testament, why would he be citing this first and great commandment? Right. And yeah. going along with what you said a couple of times, you know, um, there in the middle of page 338, and Paul too saith, love is the fulfillment of, the fulfilling of the law. So there you go. We emphasize that. Go down a couple, four sentences. Neither knowledge without love towards God availeth anything, nor understanding of mysteries, nor faith, nor prophecy, but that all things are void and in vain without love. So Irenaeus, I, I mean, I hear Irenaeus prophetically exhorting the bishops to remember during this time in which there will be battles, not just from without, but from in, to remember At the core. It's about love. Don't forget love. Yeah. Right. When, when the and bishops of Alexandria or Antioch or Rome or Carthage or Hippo will get in battles with one another in the third and fourth centuries. They they needed to remember love. 
And remember those, we passed through this several pages uh, through this book already. After he, he does this um, arguing, arguing against the Gnostics, he, he pauses and he says, I'm praying for you. He doesn't lose sight of this missionary obligation to bring them home, bring them back to the truth. At the bottom of 338, that is, the precepts of perfect life being the same in both Testaments showed their God to be the same. And that's what you pointed out, Monsignor. Then he goes on, who while he laid down his precepts of detail as suited each of the two, did in both recommend the very same as the higher and the cheapest, without which is no salvation. Love. And that's the foundation to Lumen Gentium 14. That's right. The love is the foundation, Old and New Testament. Same God, one message, underlying everything. Which is why he would say in the Old Testament, I don't want your sacrifices. I want your heart. Don't you wonder if I was wondering about this, if the drafters of Lumen Gentium, some of them were using Irenaeus. I I would be surprised because Irenaeus is quoted yeah. a lot in the catechism, I know, and and, yeah. uh, and I I can't help but and I really believe, and for those of you outside the church, I have to say that one of the most pleasant things that I found when I became a Catholic was recognizing, number one, how truly committed to Christ so many of the leaders of the church are. And I know we're going through a time of scandal, so that kind of the, the, the worst apples in the pile get the most attention. But as Monsignor, you said at the UCCB meeting, it's refreshing to recognize that so many of the bishops, as well as priests, the reason they are in their position is because they totally surrender to Jesus Christ, and they love Christ. And they're well-informed. And so I wouldn't be surprised a bit if many of them who'd studied patristics in seminary and, and would have Irenaeus as the foundation to so much of what they said in the, in the council. Yeah. I, mean, I don't think the word Peretti means dummy. <laughs> no. What, to the audience, I don't know what the word Peretti means. Wasn't that the... Peri- yeah, the Peritas. Peritas, yeah. 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 They yeah. were the, the theological foundational advisors to the bishops right. during the second. Ratzinger was one of those. You know, another one is, um, uh, here's a little book on, the, the, on Irenaeus, The Scandal of the Incarnation. And it's written by Hans Urs von, von Balthasar. Okay. Now, a lot of conservative Catholics have been sort of conditioned to think he's not a good guy. And I beg to differ. He was one of the Pariti yeah. of the Second Vatican Council. Yeah. And I, anyway. Well, he's, he's published by Ignatius yeah. Press. So usually if they're published by Ignatius Press, they're trustworthy, right? That's right. You know, <laughs> in my view, yeah. I've, everything I've ever read from Ignatius Press. Uh, so we've, we've covered a lot on page 30. 338, 339. We started looking at some of the stuff on uh, page 340. I would like to point out in 340 um, something that jumped out at me. Um, 
and that is that the the precepts, this is down about the section five, down mm-hmm. about, I don't know, eight or nine, it says, setting forth, um, oh, this is in that, that famous story where where the, the man comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and our Lord says, well, if thou wilt enter life, keep the commandments. And when he asked, well, which Lord? The Lord replied, Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love the neighbor as thyself. Setting forth the precepts of the law as a sort of steps of the entrance into life for all who were vain to follow him. So, again, we have the staircase, if you will, the the natural precepts of the law. And then build on that, the law of Moses, you know, and then we have the development in terms of even Deuteronical laws as a responding to the weaknesses of the people. But then we have Christ saying, this is what it was said, but now I say unto you. And Jesus, as he says in a sermon, I didn't come to, I'm not going to get rid of a dot or a tittle of the law, but he's going to fulfill it. And... Um, this idea, but but he goes on, and this is what jumped out at me. And in saying it then to this one person, he said it unto all. But when the other had said, I have done it all, and then in parenthesis, and perhaps he had not done, excuse me, and perhaps he had not done it, else surely it would not be said to him, keep the commandments. In other words, he's saying, if Jesus Jesus would have known. Yeah. You know, and so if he had kept it, he, Jesus wouldn't have said that. But this is where he goes on. I think I, I underlined this a bunch of times in my mm-hmm. text. The Lord, to reprove his covetousness, said to him, If thou wilt be perfect, go sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor and come follow me, promising the portion of apostles to such as did so. Um, go down below a little bit, because now he's into talking about the Gnostics, but if you go down a little bit, but he says, but he taught men to do the things which God commanded from the beginning and to destroy their old covetousness by good works and to follow Christ. As to the fact that dis- distributing men's possessions to the poor doth make away with their past covetousness. Now, the reason I, that jumped out at me, I don't know if I can find this verse real quick, is covetousness is pointed out by Paul as essentially the new idolatry. Yeah. That's going to be the idolatry of the age of the church covetousness. In the Old Testament, it was these stone images because people couldn't hold on to an invisible God, so they had to keep making these, you know, what's the first thing that happens when Moses goes up to the mountain? Well, the people say, let's make ourselves a, a, a So they talked Aaron into it, and Aaron was the local archbishop, and he gave in to the people, and they built remember he said, I, they threw the golden, and out came this calf, you know? Uh, well, so anyway, but the new idol, the new idol of the New Testament will be 
covetousness. Boy, I wish I could find that scripture where he says that. And it's, um, anyway, Monsignor, I think that's significant that he points that out here. Covetousness. Beware. Beware of that. Because didn't that become a problem even in the early church? Oh, yeah. I was, yeah, in the, those early chapters in Acts, we're dealing with um, all sorts of covetous would-be disciples that are trying to, you know, get into the action. Didn't the, um, oh boy, I'm not finding it real quick. Um, I'm sorry, everyone. Again, I, it is my view that Irenaeus was a prophet and that he was warning um, the growing church um, to beware of what the devil will use to try and destroy the church. And to me, that is this issue of covetousness. Power, prestige, money, position, influence, boom. Because covetousness is what a king, a king claims property. Um, no, I was thinking at several points in in this in these sec in these pages to come. Now he mentions this how um, the tithe, um, you know, in the in the old law, people if they give the tithe, then they're kind of free to move on with their lives. And Irenaeus points out that in in the in the in the Church of Jesus Christ, there isn't a tithe. There's a hundred percent. And the whole idea of sort of thinking that there is something of um, some material goods that I can, you know, hold on for myself and for my own edification and glory and all that sort of thing is, as you say, it is, it's a kind of idolatry. Well, we have this, if you will, the trajectory, even a development. We see it in the books of Wisdom and Sirach. We see it in our Lord warning about, you know, focusing on the things of heaven, not of this earth, where your heart is, there's your treasure. Paul Tim telling Timothy about the, the, you know, the, the love of money is the root. Be careful. Here's that verse I was trying to find. It's in Colossians 3, 5, and 6. Colossians 3, 5, and 6, where he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Covetousness, which is idolatry. And then we have Irenaeus, a hundred years later, saying the same thing. Guys, it, it, what did Jesus point out to that rich young ruler? All this other stuff, yeah, it's Paul does. But at the mm -hmm. bottom line is covetousness. Don't go there, guys. And we're going to see in the history of the church that in the third, fourth, fifth centuries, unfortunately, Popes and bishops can become the richest, most powerful men in the kingdom. 
And we see that, you know, you're you're a former Anglican and good Henry VIII, humble, simple, was drawn into iniquity by his advisor, Cardinal Wolseley, Wolsey, Wolsey, who built himself what's called Hampton Palace as his personal abode. Um, oh, that Henry VIII might have had a different... Maybe if, if Henry VIII had had John Fisher as an advisor, maybe the Reformation had never happened. <laughs> Marcus, I, I, you just brought back a memory from when I was a graduate student. Um, I was a member of Christ Church Oxford at the time. <laughs> we were brought upstairs in the library one day to... Um, to venerate the Zucchetto of Cardinal Wolsey. Because oh. <laughs> <laughs> the Christchurch was built um, on stuff that was taken from the monasteries. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, all of us that watched yeah. Downton Abbey, how many people realize that the word Downton, what? <laughs> Abbey. Abbey. Downton Abbey. What was it before? It was stolen <laughs> property. It was an abbey that was passed on down. So, are we a far field or what, Monsignor? Um, uh, we're just having a lot of fun with I, this text. Okay. Well, we're yeah. we're jumping along. Um, I think we'll call it a day. We're going to pick up probably around page three forty-two. I'm guessing. In case any of you want to send us an email or something, there's so much in there, so much good stuff. To, but Monson, you might want to draw me back into something. But I was thinking that we've covered an awful lot of this very stuff that maybe if we picked up with um, chapter 13, section 2, 3, or 4, might be a good place for us to pick up because we've kind of jumped okay. along a lot of that same stuff. All right. And, All right. Uh, and, and Marcus, you know, um, just to highlight that a point that you've made earlier in this podcast, the very beginning of chapter 13, maybe that's how we can close just to, um, on at the bottom of page 340. And that the Lord did not abolish, but extend and fulfill the natural precepts of the law by which man is justified. Um, even before the giving of the law were kept as such, uh, kept by such as were justified by faith. Um, that, that expression there, the Lord did not abolish, but extend and fulfill the natural precepts of the law. That's what's coming next is... Yeah. How do you explain um, that transition from the old law to the church now? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. Guys like Marcy and others had such a hard time putting the two together. You know, so they had to reject one or the other, and so. But Irenaeus emphasizes this wonderful continuity as. Yeah. Pope Emeritus Benedictus XVI would emphasize this hermeneutic of continuity. Thank you, Monsignor. Thank you so much, Marcus. All right. And all of you, thank you for joining us on this episode. I uh, thank you for sticking with us. If you got any comments or questions, please 
send them to us at chnetwork.org. We'd love to hear from you. Look forward to being with you again next week.